0: Hi there, I'm Dexter Fergie, and you're listening to New Books in Intellectual History. Thank you very much for joining us. Today I'll be speaking with Kieran Klaus Patel about his fascinating new book, The New Deal, A Global History. It was published last year by Princeton University Press. Historians have traditionally approached the New Deal with a nation-centered perspective. Recently, however, historians have begun to unearth the global dimensions of this episode in U.S. history. Patel belongs to this handful of historians, and his book is an exceedingly successful attempt to trace the global contours of the New Deal, from its global origins to the transnational flow of policy solutions in the 1930s. The book illustrates how the U.S. was embedded in a network of states—Germany, Brazil, Japan, Belgium, Mexico, Canada, and several others—who were all flailing and innovating in response to the crisis— and who are paying attention to each other's developments. The result of Patel's efforts is a New Deal that looks a lot less exceptional, yet no less important to global history. The book deserves a wide audience, and not just a U.S.-focused one. It would be of interest to historians of Latin America and Europe, and really any historian interested in global histories of the welfare state, transnational movement of ideas, and interwar international relations. It also would function as an excellent survey for anyone wanting to know more about the New Deal and global history in the 1930s and 40s. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm here with Kieran Klaus Patel to talk about his new book, The New Deal, A Global History. Welcome to the show, Kieran. Thank you. Glad to be here, Dexter. Of course. I found your book exceedingly rich and enjoyable, and I'm excited to talk about it. Um, Can you start us off by telling listeners what brought you to history?
1: Oh, that's a long time ago. I think I was already interested in history when I was kind of already quite young. It was more ancient history that interested me first, living in Europe where you see all these ruins and things. And it then kind of probably was more when I started attending university, started to get interested in history, that I really came to, to speak, you know, study uh, modern American history. So that is much later in, in my life that I really got into that. Can
0: you just sort of elaborate on what brought you to American history?
1: Actually, I, I when I started studying history, I was particularly interested in contemporary German history and also the history of the Third Reich. And uh, of course, any historian who wants to understand the Third Reich simply tries to understand why a modern society, industrialized country where there was a democracy in place, then kind of turned into such a brutal, vile dictatorship. Why the Holocaust was possible? And again, to understand the Third Reich, one dimension that one has to factor in is the Great Depression, and that is of course also a historical phenomena that hit the American, uh, hit America very hard. And from there on, it was clear to me that I wanted to understand better why America took such a different direction in the 1930s than um, Nazi Germany. And that was one of the main reasons why I started to become interested in the history of the New Deal specifically, and also, of course, in other periods of U.S.-American history.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. So uh, let's get into the book. The book is... Uh, a really fresh take on a well-researched topic, the New Deal, Uh, and whereas other historians have taken a a more nation-centered approach, um, your book aims to really globalize this era of American history. And before we specifically plunge into the global side of the argument, I was wondering if you could just tell listeners briefly what you take to be the New Deal. New deal. That's probably
1: one of the most difficult questions because I think generations of historians and political analysts and other people have tried to understand what the New Deal is and pin it down and identify it with one political philosophy with Canadian economic policies, for instance, and other things. And I think what we see is that the New Deal was many, many things all at the same time, that there wasn't one economic policy. What it ultimately did, I think, was to change the relationship between citizens in the United States to the state that the national state the level of the nation of the federal um, administration became a much more important reality in americans lives and that is something that I find important and also secondly, if you compare to what 's going on in other places in the 1930s in the world, you also see striking similarities that there is a search for making the life of people more secure. And this is what you see kind of in the realm of the economy, but also when it comes to social relations, when it comes, of course, to the dimension of military security then in the later half of the 1930s. And I think in that sense, there isn't one guiding philosophy It's not laissez-faire. It's not just state interventionism. It's a little bit of everything, but also there are some guiding principles that you see kind of that are quite characteristic of the 1930s more generally that I find interesting to see also in the New Deal. So in that sense, also looking at um, this chapter of American history from a more global perspective has also made me see it in a different light than I think others have seen it so far um, from a more U.S.-centered
0: view. Absolutely. I uh, 100% agree with that. I think that's probably where your your book does best, is sort of uh, undermining the uh, exceptionalism of the 1930s in the U.S. Um, with yours, your various different international comparisons. And so the book's scope is definitely vast. Uh, its sources are uh, extremely broad, and you manage uh, a secondary uh, literature in several different languages. And I know this book took a long time to write, um, yes, sure. <laughs> Unfortunately, you're yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, can you do? You want to just, uh, share with listeners something about the making of this book? Perhaps uh, what you envisioned when you began, and what the final product, how the final product compares to that.
1: Of course, happy to. Uh, you know, there is this anecdote that the book really started in in a small bar in Zurich, Switzerland, when Sven Beckert, professor at Harvard University, asked me if I was interested in writing such a thing. <laughs> uh, this was when Suhen and Jeremy Suri had just set up this series with Princeton University Press on America um, in the global world and where they were still looking for books that could fit into that series – Um, There are books in that series that are rather specific monographs on, you know, very kind of clearly narrowly defined topics of American history in a global perspective. But the idea was from the beginning in that series to also have synthesis on bigger key questions in American history. And Sven and Jeremy thought that the New Deal was one of these periods moments which have a vast global dimension that is often not so seen because it's often seen that, of course, the Great Depression and World War One are global moments, again, more importantly and more visibly also World War Two. But the New Deal as a period sandwich between these other periods is then seen as a nation centered period. So for me, it was very interesting to start thinking about this. And um, it came at a period in my life when I had also worked on other topics, but also when it was nice to go back to uh, the topic that had kind of been at the center of my PhD thesis Um, which I kind of published as a book in 2005 in English with Cambridge UP, which was a comparison between um, um, New Deal policies and, again, the policies of the Third Reich, something I mentioned already earlier. But that was really a bilateral, binational history, if you will, and the idea was now to really go far beyond that and to globalize the vision. And this is exactly what I tried to do. Again, writing the book, it was uh, quite time-consuming Also, because my life was rather transnational in this period, I should say, because I started this book writing when I was still a kind of on a job in Florence, Italy, and then I moved to the job that I now have in, in the Netherlands, in Maastricht, but I was also in the US and in England and in France and in a number of other places for several months or even up to a year in between. So in that sense, it also came in a period that kind of was quite busy in other ways. But I should say that also kind of this experience of working in several places, also on at least two continents and in four or five different countries, I think made the book richer for me because I could see also um, the, the history of the New Deal and of countries at the time in a more global perspective by kind of reading up more on the literature of these places by living in some of these places and also talking to colleagues. Of course, Uh, this is a monograph which implies that I have written it, but of course it is also the result of many dialogues with people, conversations, and of course trying to read up in all kinds of literatures on these various topics. Um, So in that sense, it's um, kind of the result of many years of work um, I think it's quite close to the original idea that we had, that um, it should be a book that you could, hopefully, that you can take and read next to any kind of standard account of the New Deal that is more framed in a nation-centered way. You know, from the old books by uh, Bill Lechtenberg over Schlesinger to Kennedy and others – and kind of contrast that kind of a perspective uh, by looking then at the whole topic from this more global perspective. So in that sense, I also try to create and foster this dialogue between um, the more conventional way of seeing the New Deal um, and, again, this more global approach. Again, of course, I'm not the first to do so, but the book, I think, tries to bring together um, all the rather kind of separated kind of literatures that we had so far, because there is a specific literature on transatlantic relations, on U.S.-American Pacific relations, and so on. But probably it's the first book that tries to bring this um, between two covers and tries to also see what comes out if you combine these various perspectives.
0: Terrific. So it began in a bar. <laughs> it
1: began in a bar. <laughs> um, right.
0: So, so thank you. So in describing your approach to the topic, uh, you really elegantly write the difference between routes and routes. Um, and you suggest that historians are better suited to look for the routes that policies, ideas and practices travel on rather than the routes. Can you explain what you mean by that? Right. Right.
1: I think, again, there is an obsession in history to look where things come from. These are the roots, basically. And I would argue in my book that if you talk about policy ideas in the 1930s, it is often impossible to trace where an idea, for instance, on banking regulation, on urban housing, on silver policies, on what have you not, actually comes from. Because all these ideas and also very often the political practices, governance practices uh, that come along with them, have been circulating and also been tried out in various contexts already for quite some time. So in that sense, you can't say that, well, um, river building or dam building on rivers is something that comes from the Tennessee Valley only because this conversation has been going on for decades and is globally shared already. And hence, I think the search for roots is problematic and it is these routes, the way um the discussions go where experts, where politicians, where citizens of all kinds of uh, from all kind of walks of life actually look for solutions. That's, I think, more productive. And what I'm trying to do is exactly to do that—to follow the experts and the politicians, the New Dealers, but also other people from other parts of the world in kind of the decisions, the choices they make. The things they read, the people they talk to. And I think that is exactly what the New Dealers did. And that is also something that I find so important for this period in American history, that the New Dealers against the backdrop of the Great Depression were really looking for political solutions wherever they could find them. And, of course, they were looking for what was going on in American history before. They were, of course, analyzing carefully what specific states within the Union were doing. But they were also very curious to learn from other places. And having said that, I was also interested in looking then if the world was really kind of just one place for them, if they were looking as much to China as to, say, South uh, Africa or uh, Uruguay or Sweden. And the answer is certainly no. So in that sense, I'm also trying to sketch a landscape of global interconnections, if you will. Uh, we, where I argue then that the world view of the New Dealers was highly Eurocentric that we, when looking for political answers to the problems that they saw in the United States, they were mainly looking to European countries and um, in that sense, this they were also building on a longer continuity of looking to Europe in that sense but they also identified new places that they found cool and interesting um, such as Sweden for instance and that on the other hand they also didn't just go to, to the nice places if you will that they continued to be highly interested in a place like Germany even if uh, since 1930 This had turned into one of the, if not the most brutal dictatorships um, around the world, um, that um, somebody like the president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt himself, was absolutely curious to learn really from Nazi policies that he himself ordered reports through the U.S. embassy in Berlin to um, explicitly learn from the Nazis and see what was uh, there at a technical level that one could um, kind of inspired by Um, The idea was never to kind of adopt anything that ideologically was racist and Nazi and right wing. uh, But he and many other experts at the time felt that there was a technical level of doing things, of solving problems where one could still learn from. There is this one quote that I have in my book where he says, all of this uh, helps us in planning, even though our methods are of the democratic variety. And I think that summarizes the spirit of many of the New Dealers of the time.
0: Great. So the uh, the first chapter called "A Global Crisis" walks the readers through the 1920s and specifically the origins of the Great Depression. Uh, and right. this this chapter argues that the U.S. Uh, slowed down deglobalization in the 1920s and then experienced a shared global crisis. What made 1929 and the early 1930s a global crisis? And Um, What exactly was the U.S.'s immediate response, and how did it compare to other states?
1: I think it was a global crisis because the world at the time was globally highly interconnected, and that was also a result of the long period of globalization up to 19. 14 and 17. Then, from the perspective of the United States, the beginning and then the entry into World War One, uh, which had led to many close forms of interconnection, and these had been amplified, also, but also put into a rather problematic direction by the effects of World War One, with all these new global financial links, with debts and um, and um, the reparation payments and other kind of toxic legacies by World War One. And um, if you will, the kind of the Wall Street crisis was one thing, but that pulled the plug also when it came to all these other dimensions of economic crisis that had built up in the course of the late 1910s and particularly the 1920s and led to the fact that a crisis that was american Uh, to a good extent in origin and in scope, then also infected the world economy. And of course that doesn't mean that it was only the Americans' fault. It had to do with kind of dimensions of crisis that had built up already for quite some time. Also in these other countries, there were many homegrown dimensions, but particularly particularly these financial links um, where America stood front and center were then the reason why this turned into a global problem. This had to do with rather technical issues with the Gold standard of the 1920s, and again, all these financial links with uh, the global debts from World War One and reparation payments. But this is, in a nutshell, why I think this is a global moment of crisis. For America, I think it's also important because it sits at the very end of this period of prosperity where the Americans also felt that they had an economic global model that they could share. And that was basically the way forward. And in that sense, the great depression in the early 1930s also brought a fundamental crisis of legitimacy, of the American way of doing capitalism, of the American political model also to some extent. And I think that moment of insecurity also explains why the New Dealers were then so open to explore other political options that they saw develop around the world. Um, The immediate um, reaction to the crisis in the United States was um, shock, if you will, um, unbelief. Many um, pundits, uh, experts thought that this was not a fundamental crisis. So it took quite some time to realize the dimensions that this wasn't just one of these cyclical small, small things that um, any economy tends to see from time to time, at least any capitalist economy. Um, But then um, there was, of course, a certain turn to austerity, i.e. to cut spending and also to go for a more nationalistic form of economic policies to withdraw from the world and not to highlight and focus on international cooperation. And this is what you also see in many other parts of the world. This, of course, was very extreme in those countries that turned into dictatorships. And. Um, fascist Italy being one, later on also Nazi Germany, where the policy of otterky uh, were important. Um, you also see it, of course, in the Soviet Union, which also to a good extent um, pursued a nation-centered uh, course of policymaking at the level of the economy. So in that sense, I think there were certain important perils and that also um, the idea of helping people and not let them suffer um, to whatever the economy would bring was also a shared element what you see um, unfold in the 1930s. They're going back to World War One for one second is important again Again, this had been a global war and a global war where resources of any kind had been mobilized to an extent unknown in human history, where states around the world had demanded much more from people, but also said, well, you know, we will help you also in moments of crisis. We'll pay back. And if you will, the 1930s, the early 1930s was the moment when people were also expecting the state to act up on this promise and to help them. And that, of course, did not really work in many societies. If you just look at the figures of unemployment um, in Nazi Germany on Germany and in the United States particularly high, but also very high in many other countries, which then led to a readjustment of political discussions and also political systems with many um, countries going for authoritarian dictatorships. And democracies also very often fundamentally asking themselves which direction they should go to overcome the crisis.
0: Perfect. Yeah. One of the most striking uh, comparisons in this chapter for me was the uh, comparison uh, between uh, the Middletown study by Robert and Helen Lind and then the Marienthal study, the, the Austrian city. Um, by Lazarus Field and others, uh, and you really see, uh, these global connections being formed and how the, like, even the debates themselves were becoming synchronized.
1: Exactly, that's what you see at the time because um, this is study of uh, people suffering from unemployment, but also just having kind of normal lives in the years before, in the 1920s and into the 1930s. But it is interesting that we know so much more about these societies and also the life of average people, if you will, um, for the 1920s and 30s than for most other earlier periods in history, because this is the period in which social sciences are on the rise, where these new kind of forms of reading societies and reading people's lives, when the new statistics and also other instruments of analyzing society become available, and they do not become available in one country or the other, they do become available in a transnational, a global, and particularly North Atlantic dialogue, which also explains why these um, experts in countries like Austria and the United States are very closely connected And it's one of the bitter ironies that um, some of the um, Marienthal-Austria study people end up in exile in the United States um, after having been quite critical of some of the work of their American colleagues, who to some extent then also helped them, of course, to survive um, uh, the dictatorships, uh, particularly Nazi um, Germany's dictatorship and its takeover of Austria in the late 1930s.
0: Okay, so on to the next chapter uh, called... Uh, in search of new beginnings. This one shows the political impact um, that the Great Depression had on states across the world. Uh, And several states turned away from uh, laissez-faire policies, and there was a push towards more alternative approaches, such as fascism, or in the case of the United States, the third way. And the early New Deal consisted of domestic intervention and uh, international insulationism. And in the history of U.S. foreign relations, we love to debate interwar isolationism. Uh, And So I was wondering if you could just say something a little bit about the term insulationism and why you think it's more apt to describe the early New Deal's interactions with the world.
1: There is again this old discussion about uh, how to characterize interwar America. Uh, some say, well, this is a period where you have an internationalist policy where the Americans reach out and kind of interact with the world. But the majority of uh, kind of scholars probably would argue the opposite that this is an isolationist period where America withdraws from the world. And again, the fact that the Americans were not willing to also reach out more to Europe particularly after World War One, is then often seen as one of the reasons for the Great Depression. Again, the Americans not joining the League of Nations that they had kind of basically thought up uh, with Woodrow Wilson in the first place and so on. I think that this the old discussion is a bit, has become a bit sterile, and therefore I try to introduce a new term. It's not my term. It's a term by one of um, uh, the people who lived through this time and also shaped it to a good extent by a man um, by the name of Arthur Vandenberg, whom some of you will know as a Republican censor from Michigan, who in 1940 um, in his diary used this term of i-insulation, um, which he saw as an, um, as an alternative to isolation. And he argued that based Basically, Isolation in the old sense doesn't work anymore in a time where it is possible to cross the Atlantic Ocean in 36 hours where the world has become such a connected place. So in that sense, he felt that isolationism doesn't work in a world that has become globalized to such an extent and that basically insulation is, and here I quote him, is one is all that one wants to preserve um, in the world under modern circumstances and what they permit. So in that sense, the starting point is to realize that the world has become a global place and that societies interact very closely with each other. But the point is also that as a reaction to that, um, the United States wanted to withdraw from some of these connections. So I would see quite a few parallels to the situation we find ourselves in the United States in today, where, again, it is not um, isolationism, as a reaction or as a as a as a result of parochial impulses, but rather insulation to be seen as a reaction to global forces. This is the main point that it's a reaction to global forces. And therefore this inward turn also is seen in a dialogue to wider world trends. And therefore I've tried to use and introduce this term in into the conversation.
0: Perfect. Uh, and and so, even though you described the U.S. as being inward looking in this period to a certain extent, um, they're also looking out to the world for, you know, policy ideas and practices. And we've already kind of alluded to their interests in, uh, Nazi Germany. But I was wondering if you could talk about the, why the U.S. was looking to Germany and Italy and, uh, other, uh, authoritarian countries for policy ideas and, uh, what that looked like in the United States. Yeah,
1: I think, again, it sounds like a contradiction to say on the one hand, the United States was turning inward, but on the other hand, to also argue, as the book does, that many Americans, and particularly politicians, experts, were so highly fascinated by what was going on in other parts of the world. Now, my answer to this is the following, that I argue in the book that these American experts deeply shaken by the crisis of the American model, were simply trying to look at any kind of answer to the challenges of the time they could find. And that, again, included also looking abroad. But what they were not looking for was really kind of for new forms of international cooperation. What they were looking for at the international level is for answers that would help America, America first, if you will. So in that sense, it was an inter- turn to the international to find the best national answer. And this again explains why they turned to the experience of many European countries building also on transnational networks that were well in place, at least since the Gilded Age. Um, Daniel Rogers and others have done fantastic research on this earlier period to show also how there were established networks of interconnection. And my argument is that these didn't come to an end with the New Deal and they also didn't end where kind of democracy stopped, but that they also, these American pundits and experts and policymakers were highly interested in what was going on in some of the new dictatorships of the time. Let's maybe start with Italy um, that had already gone fascist in the 1920s with uh, Mussolini, um, where I think it is important to not... Um, see this country from the perspective of today. We know that it was a fascist dictatorship. We know that it was a uh, brother in arms of Nazi Germany later on. But I think it's important to remind ourselves, for a moment at least, uh, what Americans at the time probably thought about the country. And um, if you were living in 19, say 26 or seven, you thought, "Wow, okay, this is our former brothers in arms in World War One." So it was not a former enemy of World War One. Um, then it's interesting to see that the very term of dictatorship was also not as clearly um, associated with political systems in the United States at the time as it is today, that uh, people probably thought, well, dictatorship can mean, or dictator can mean many things, but also some might have remembered that in ancient Rome, um, dictators were actually crisis managers in the Republican system and not really people who went for something that we today would associate with maybe a totalitarian system. So some people obviously early on saw the undemocratic, the highly problematic potentials of these policies, but others I think were slightly less critical. And that is what we need to know. And again, the second thing being that there was this global search for new political directions against the de of the existing uh, political model and economic model in the United States. And there was the idea that democracies, including the United States, was actually lagging behind. That one, one had to look at those countries that had seemingly, often more than in reality, overcome the crisis more quickly and were injecting a new sense of dynamism, of mobilization, of optimism into their populations. And this is the reason why the Soviet Union attracted quite a few of the more left-leaning New Dealers, why, again, Roosevelt himself was also interested in Nazi policies, why also many other countries were studied very carefully. And we should also not forget that, of course, the number of democracies went down dramatically in the course of the 1920s and 30s. If after the end of World War One one had thought that this is the global moment of democracy, it soon seemed over again and if one was only to cooperate with democracies one would have remained rather lonely on the planet if one if, if you will and therefore there were also these kind of reasons why people started to look For these alternatives, continue to travel to these other places, but also, of course, again, discovering new places like Sweden, which had seemed a rather small remote country in Scandinavia to many American um, experts before. But that was now in the course of the 1930s, during the very period of the New Deal, um, then also discovered, I would argue, as a very interesting reform democracy that to some extent could serve as a model for American policymaking. While, let me just maybe end with that, it is also interesting that experiences made in other parts of the world, in Latin America, where there was also new initiatives in welfare state building, for instance, or in um, innovative agricultural and economic policies, also the same in parts of Asia, were often ignored. So in that sense, America's had this rather Eurocentric perspective on the world and were only considering some parts of the world as interesting in their search for best national answers.
0: Great. Yeah, the, the section on that you call Inventing Sweden was really wonderful because Sweden continues to serve as a, a reference point in contemporary political debates about uh, the welfare state. And you show right. how these early transatlantic crossings in a way cultivated Sweden as, as uh, this now common example in our mental map of welfare states today.
1: Exactly. That's exactly what I'm trying to show but I think it's also interesting to see what which of these developments only happened later that for instance Japan was not seen as an interesting place to go to and if you if one remembers the debates of the 1970s and 80s where then the big discussion was what can we learn from Japan and its new economic model right as today many people worry about and wonder about kind of the Chinese economy it's interesting that that was very different in the 1930s still so in that sense, there are some continuities, some early beginnings in the New Deal, but not everything started in that period already.
0: Yeah, without sounding too much like a a fanboy, uh, (laughs) uh, another really interesting thing about your book was uh, really that, that you show how what matters in the 1930s is, is not only what the United States does, but also the alternatives that it doesn't pursue. Right, um, And I think that's a really uh, big historiographical point that we, th- this is something that we have to look into. I think. And so the, the, the third chapter, Into the Vast External Realm, mm-hmm. this one traces the U.S.'s relations with the world from FDR's early inattention toward foreign affairs um, to the more globally aware foreign policy of the later 30s. And uh, this chapter begins with just a series of foreign policy blunders, really just examples of FDR's administration not really caring about what happens beyond the borders of the United States. And one specific one that I was just so struck by was just the haphazard way in which they would determine the price of gold. Right. Uh, and at one point, uh, FDR increased the price by just 21 cents because it was a lucky number. Exactly. And, and, and these things obviously matter internationally. So can you sort of share with listeners how the FDR administration went from this inattentive foreign policy to a more thought-out, proactive foreign policy? And what role did the New Deal play in this development?
1: Right. This is a complex and a long process that really took most of the pre-war New Deal years, I would argue. Roosevelt himself was actually a committed internationalist. One could argue there is this famous 1928 foreign affairs article in which he even argued that the United States should join the League of Nations. And that was, of course, a taboo topic, if you will. But then when he became president, he absolutely prioritized, particularly in the early years of his presidency, um, a nation-centered policy. He was so much committed to um, the reform program, the alphabet soup of agriculture reform, of the National Industrial Recovery Administration, of the Civil Conservation Corps, and all these other agencies, that he felt that this really had to come first and that international cooperation – It could only come at a later stage and was second to it. Um, Of course, the New Deal was not just the president himself. And with his Secretary of State, um, Hull, there was always a certain kind of counterbalance and many others who also felt that the United States really had to play a more global role and be aware of its global commitments and live up to them. So in that sense, there were tensions early on. But there is, in this first phase of the New Deal, I would argue, a strong priority given to national recovery. And I think that it also results from the fact that the world of the early 1930s was seen by many new dealers as a place that is dangerous in this economic sense. Hence, insulation, you insulate yourself from the world, from its economic effects that could otherwise um, be um, uh, 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 highly problematic for the domestic American situation and um, make it even worse. I think the most important factor that explains the change to a more proactive, more internationalist policy has to do with the changes in the world, not so much with domestic changes within the United States. The world of the second half of the 1930s was a much more dangerous place, with particularly fascist and rightist dictatorships showing their aggressive imperialist potentials. This is Italy in North Africa. This is Germany in Europe. This is um, Japan in East Asia where also American experts, policymakers and the president himself had to realize that if one simply stood apart, this could become a major problem and in the long term could also um, jeopardize American security. In that sense, the turn to a more international policy was not so much internally driven, but bestowed on Americans by and due to the effects of these global changes and the um, kind of the increasing aggressiveness of these righteous dictatorships. Um I would argue that the beginnings of these policies to also go for a more internationalist policy lie more in the field of Latin American policies and the good neighbor policy than in transatlantic policies. Often transatlantic policy is seen as the most important realm of policy policymaking um, um, at least until recently in American um, political history. And I would argue that the more interesting innovative forms um, of commercial policies are, of also overcoming a nation-centered policy were actually tried out um, already since 1933 434 um, with regard to Latin America. And some of these models were later on also actually from there exported to other parts of the world. And um, therefore, it's also interesting to see a new kind of dynamic in how the United States interacted with other parts of the world.
0: Wonderful. So the next chapter, Redefining Boundaries, outlines the New Deal after 1935, and it experiences uh, some hiccups, but it persists and uh, the alphabet soup grew. What changed about the New Deal after 1935? And uh, what were some of the global sources of those changes and the global implications of those changes?
1: Uh, there is an older literature that argues that there is a first and a second New Deal. I don't think this really works so well, but I do think that there are important changes in this later period of the New Deal. And I also try to show in this uh, uh, third chapter the kind of effects that earlier programs of the New Deal actually had. And also, from moving, to, I try to move from a slightly more state centered perspective to also see what. Actually, the life of Americans looked like at the time, and in how far the effects of media policy making started to really impact on their lives. Um, One of the flagship policy programs of the time was Social Security, and there I argue that this, of course, is a policy program that has changed um, the American state and the American welfare state um, fundamentally, um, not only due to its obvious impact, and if today we talk about the abolition again of Obamacare, we can't really understand what's going on in this conversation without going back to the New Deal era, but also maybe at a more fundamental level, because again, the Social Security Act of 1935 created new links and bonds between the federal government and the federal level um, and citizens around the country. Um, up until the New Deal, I would argue that in periods of peace, it was mainly the post office and to some extent the discussions about taxes that affected average Americans in their daily lives when it comes to the federal level. And other than that, there was rather little state or there was the municipal level, the state level, but there wasn't something very much about the United States of America as as a, as a national entity. And this really starts to change with the New Deal, and particularly again in the second period of the nineteen second half of the 1930s with the programs that were then tried out.
0: Great. And you also talk about the debate over the, quote, American way. Right. Um, and how it was very much a reaction to political developments in other parts of the world, such as Germany and Japan. Can you say something about this debate? Right.
1: I, there, there, I, I argue in my book that the early 1930s, Um, You see an American discussion very much driven by an insecurity of which direction the country should go and trying to find answers wherever you could look for them, basically. Whereas in the second half of the 1930s, you see something that I call a reification of the American political conversation. What does this mean? This means that there is a new discussion in the country about the American way. Um, This means that after this period of crisis and also as an effect of the New Deal programs, there is a new vision of what the country actually is. I would argue that this is very much a result of the New Deal and also of this transnational global conversation that is part of the early New Deal. It's not that what the Americans then define as the American way has always been the obvious option what America should stand for, but that it just shows the consolidation also of a certain kind of social contract and political model, which is again the result of this earlier period and also of these transnational exchanges. So if you want to summarize it and have it in a nutshell, I would argue that the new vision of America is a very nation-centered vision with the second half of the 1930s, but this nation-centered vision is exactly the result of transnational exchanges. So in that sense, you have to look far abroad and you have to compare the United States to other countries. You have to look at these transnational exchanges to fully understand why and how then this new American way, the Americans so much talk about in the second half of the 1930s, looked like.
0: Great. And we're now on to the final chapter, uh, the American World Order. And here in this chapter, you trace the New Deal from World War II to the post-war world. By 1945, um, Roosevelt is dead, as are many of his fellow New Dealers, but many of the programs of the New Deal uh, and other legacies uh, continue to live on. And uh, really interestingly, in the previous chapter and as well this one, New Deal ideas weren't taken hook, line, and sinker by other states, but it did become a global icon in the 30s. It remained one in the post-war world and continues to be one today. Um, Why has the New Deal been so historically appealing?
1: It has been historically appealing because I think it shows that democracies and again, democracies in the 1930s were often not seen as those uh, kind of political systems spearheading developments and kind of find, finding new constructive ways. Often many contemporaries felt that the dictatorships, the Soviet Union on the radical left, but also the dictatorships on the right, were the more dynamic forces. And I think that the New Deal was, in a global conversation about political answers and models and reactions to the crisis, the key experience to show that democracies were also able to reinvent themselves and come up with a highly constructive um, new social construct uh, contract and a new solution to the challenges of the time. Um, This explains why countries around the world soon started to adopt the language, the um, images, the icons, the symbolism of the New Deal. Uh, The New Dealers, of course, also were responsible for this in trying to sell and promote their kind of policies across the world. In my book, I try to show this in several ways by trying to say, well, on the one hand, it is the New Dealers who now go global. And it is interesting to see that many people who were in one of the alpha. With soup agencies in Iowa or in Michigan or the other, after 1945, start doing the same kind of things in Osaka, in, um, in North Rhine Westphalia, in one part of Europe or Asia or the other. Um And therefore, they try to globalize the New Deal. I'm also trying to show that this does, of course, not mean that um, reactions and policies in these other parts of the world then simply were one-to-one copies of American practices. That there were many misunderstandings and there were very selective processes of adaptation just in the way as Americans in the earlier part of my book, in particularly Chapter 2 um, for the early New Deal – also were highly selective in the ways they thought about progressive uh, programs and 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 policies in other places so again this is not a, um, a straightforward story i think it's interesting and to see also how the american post 45 global leadership was very much contested negotiated and how the new deal has played a crucial part in that story this is what i'm trying to briefly summarize and sketch more than really fully show in that
0: fifth chapter of the book. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm just going to ask you to elaborate on that last point um, because I think it's really interesting. You argue that the post-45 hegemonic um, United States can really only be understood after looking into the 1930s, the New Deal. Can you just explain to listeners how did these... Programs and their promoters lead the United States into a commitment to to multilateralism, human rights, and globalism in the post 45 world.
1: There is, of course, several years. And America had a vision also as a, 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 a the beacon upon the hill for a long time already, long before the New Deal. But I would argue that the very state-centered and kind of state-run form of interacting with the global world was only possible due to the scaffolding of America power received during the New Deal. What does this mean? Um, It is a learning experience from the 1930s to build these new multilateral and international forms of cooperation. And it is very often organizations that then build a lot of New Deal DNA. Um, A few examples have to suffice. Um, For instance, after already in the 1940s, early 1940s, The Social Security Administration that I mentioned earlier, that in its early days had been so much inspired by practices in other places thought of itself as a global model and tried to sell its practices in other parts of the world. So the way some of the social security systems in Latin America and elsewhere look was also the result of a dialogue with American practices. Um, The New Deal state um, also had an important impact on agricultural policies, economic policies, urban planning, and all these kinds of things. The role of um, trade unions, for instance, In countries in their post-war reorganization, Um, probably the easiest way to kind of to exemplify this is to talk about the Tennessee Valley Authority the idea to build these vast dams as regional development projects that bring electrification but also prosperity to, to depleted regions, which was then also very much sold and um, and emulated again in other parts of the world. So in that sense, it was these state-run and state-organized forms of policymaking that I think are very important to understand how America uh, interacted with other parts of the world in the post-45 There's also important differences Um, the whole military dimension that of course also came to to define American power post-45 is absolutely or almost absolutely absent in the New Deal state Um, I have this um, small anecdote in the book that um, after Pearl Harbor Roosevelt's president, of course, had to go up to Congress to deliver his speech, and the only safe car that was available was one that had belonged to Al Capone. So the United States president, the commander-in-chief, had to use a former gangster's car to be (laughs) securely driven up to to Capitol Hill – And that shows that, again, the New Deal state did many things to secure the life of Americans through state action. But the military dimension that also came to define America's role in the post-45 world in the Cold War was something that isn't part of this story. So there is important elements of continuity in the post-war world, but also, of course, um, other things that have other sources.
0: Wonderful. So in the tradition of the show, we always conclude with one final question, which is, can you tell listeners what you're working on right now?
1: Yeah, I, I have a different life also. I also work on the history of the EU, which, of course, is a very different topic, but also a topic that, of course, has to do with the transnational and the global dimensions of history where the idea of looking at history from the perspective beyond a nation state is front and center. And I think that in today's world, we see how important the EU has become, how contested it is also is as a political project. It's still often ignored and few people really know something about its history. And the book that I'm presently writing is trying to really understand the history of um, what has led to today's EU in the 20th century.
0: Well, I'm excited to read it. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Dexter. Bye.